Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody, to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, and I'd like to welcome you today to our discussion of public opinion on U.S. foreign policy. What is it, and how does it matter? The way I sort of uh, conceived of this and thought that it was important was, number one, there's a lot of fluctuation uh, in American attitudes on U.S. foreign policy over, say, the last 10 or 12 years. And it was worth touching on the substance of what those changes were. Um, so we're going to talk about that. But we're also going to talk about something that I think is probably less well understood uh, here in town. And that's the question how U.S. public opinion influences uh, U.S. foreign policy, influences policymakers, and the extent to which and the manner in which it should influence uh, policymakers. So that's a pretty broad ambit uh, that we're going to try to discuss today. And it's going to touch, I think, on some traditions in public opinion research, uh, in American political thought, obviously, the, the Almond-Lippmann hypothesis was one of uh, profound skepticism uh, about the American public's view and ability to influence uh, U.S. foreign policy in salutary ways. Uh, statesmen like George Kennan also had rather dim views of the public. Um, and so I think you know, there's that underpinning, uh, sort of undercurrent of political thought uh, that underlays this. So what does the public think? How does it matter and how should it matter are the basic uh, topics we're going to discuss here today. So I'll introduce all three of our speakers in the order in which they'll speak and then turn them over um, if you could speak from the podium. Uh, and then we'll do Q&A afterward, uh, just seated. And we're going to bravely, intrepidly try to do PowerPoint here today. So if it goes wrongly, I will take the full blame for that <laughs> as the panel's Luddite in chief. Um, the first speaker will be Richard Weick, who's the associate director of the Pew Research Center's Global Attitudes Project. Uh, in the course of that work, he conducts research and writes about international public opinion on a variety of topics, including America's global image, the rise of China, and views in predominantly Muslim countries among them. Uh, before he, he went to Pew, he was a senior associate for international and corporate clients at Greenberg Quinlan Rosner Research, and he received his doctorate in political science from Emory University. The second speaker today is Danny Hayes, who's assistant professor of political science at George Washington University. His research focuses on political communication and political behavior in American politics. He's a former journalist. We won't hold that against him. Uh, but he's interested in how information from the media and from other political actors influences citizens' attitudes during public policy debates and election campaigns. He's the author recently of a book from Cambridge University Press earlier this year entitled Influence from Abroad, Foreign Voices, the Media, and U.S. Public Opinion. He's published widely in peer-reviewed journals as well as popular journals and holds his Ph.D. from UT Austin. Finally, Trevor Thrall is associate professor at George Mason University in the Department of Public and International Affairs as well as the director of the graduate program in biodefense. He teaches courses in international security, political communication, and U.S. military intervention. A couple of books edited recently, uh, American Foreign Policy and the Politics of Fear, Threat Inflation Since 9-11, and the companion volume, which is a, has maybe the best title of a book uh, that I can remember in recent history, Why Did the United States Invade Iraq? question mark, uh, which is pretty remarkable that we're still asking that question. Uh, prior to arriving at George Mason, uh, Trevor was associate professor at University of Michigan Dearborn, 
where he directed the Master of Public Policy and Master of Public Administration programs. He received his PhD in political science from MIT, and somewhat less well-known is a uh, successful brewer of delicious craft brews in Michigan, so be sure to ask him about that. Yes, thank you. I'll just call it off now. Uh, be sure to ask him about that over lunch. So with that, I'll turn things over to Richard White. Richard, thanks. Great, well, uh, thanks very much, Justin. I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to be here and uh, to talk a little bit about the findings we've had over time in terms of how Americans uh, view foreign policy. Uh, issues. Um, you know, at Pew, what we've seen over the last few years is um, increasingly the American public wants to pull back a little bit from international entanglements, focus more on issues here at home. So we'll look at some data on that as well as some data on the reasons why uh, and what's driving that. So uh, let me start off by um, <laughs> looking at um, one of the longest running trend questions that we ask at Pew. Uh, this is a question that we've been doing since uh, the early 1990s, and the uh, Gallup organization's actually been asking for an even longer period of time. And uh, essentially what we do is we read people a statement, and we say, do you agree or disagree? The U.S. should mind its own business internationally and uh, let other countries sort of get along as best they can. Um, so the agree position is essentially a, a measure of isolationism or uh, a desire to disengage a bit from international affairs. And if you look at this trend over time, uh, over the last 50 years, it's, uh, it's spiked up at three different points in time. Uh, in the early 1970s, uh, mid-1970s, following the Vietnam War. Um, in the uh, early, mid-1990s, after the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then, in particular, in the uh, middle, uh, end of the last decade, uh, and on through into today, uh, as people grew weary of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so I think this shows you a, a pretty interesting story over time. Uh, you know, as people uh, grow weary of conflicts, as they move past conflicts, they want to turn inward a bit and take care of problems here at home and be less engaged uh, uh, internationally. And that's certainly where we're at right now in terms of American public opinion, as you can see from the, the right side of this graph. Um, another question that I think you know, highlights this in a, a slightly different way, we've been asking people uh, for a long time now, what do you think the president ought to focus on? Should it be primarily domestic policy or foreign policy? And you know, over time, what we see is that consistently people tend to say domestic policy, but they've never been more likely to say that than today. Um, you know, the last time we asked this last year, 80% said they wanted uh, the president to focus primarily on domestic policy, not foreign issues. Only 8% said foreign policy issues. So that's, uh, you know, it can't get too much lower than that in the polling business. So, um, you know, it's an overwhelming picture. If you look at this slide plus the last one, it's very clear Americans want to pull back a little bit from international affairs. They want the focus uh, to be on domestic issues. Why is that? Well, I think we can probably all guess that some of the reasons why that might be. Um, certainly, it's, it's in large part the economic uh, anxiety that Americans feel and have felt since 2008 with the downturn of the, uh, the U.S. economy. And we can see that in lots of different ways. Um, this is a, an open-ended question that we, we ask and have done so a number of different times where we ask people, what's the most important problem facing the country? And uh, they can say a whole host of things. 
Um, and we aggregate that up into either sort of economic problems or social issues or foreign policy issues, et cetera. When we asked it back in 2004, in the middle of the uh, Iraq conflict, we had more people at that time, 41% saying foreign policy issues, only 25% naming economic problems. We ask it again in July of 08, is the economy starting to move in a negative direction? Very different picture. About six in 10 Americans name an economic issue. Uh, only about one in four say foreign policy issues. Since then, uh, the, the numbers for economic problems have stayed high, about the same. The numbers for foreign policy have gotten even lower. Uh, an October poll conducted last year, right before the election, only 6% named a foreign policy issue. So, you know, if you look at that compared to what we found a few years ago, it's clear that uh, you know, foreign policy issues are much less of a priority for the American public. I think that the, the economic problems we've been having here in the United States also affect how we think about America's role in the world. And you can see some of that here on this question. Uh, this is something we've been asking in the US and across the globe uh, since 2008. Uh, which country do you think is the world's leading economic power? And you can say China or the U.S. You can also say Japan or the EU, although not many people say that, uh, particularly the EU these days. Um, and, and if you look back at 2008, this is a spring survey uh, from 2008, so it's before Lehman Brothers and before things really start to get bad economically. You had 46% saying the U.S. was the world's leading economic power, just 26% naming China. Uh, those numbers begin to change, and by 2010, and what we've seen since then, is that Americans are essentially divided on this question, about as likely to say the U.S. as they are China, in terms of who's the world's top economy. And as I said, we've asked this around the world, and you see a very similar pattern. Uh, more and more people starting to name China as the top power, uh, fewer and fewer naming the U.S. It's especially dramatic in Western Europe, if you look at Spain, Germany, uh, Britain, France, uh, back in 2008, the U.S. was clearly the economic leader in terms of public perceptions. That's changed. It's very clearly China now uh, when we ask this question in Europe. Um, our economic difficulties have also affected how we view certain foreign policy issues. Again, I think China is a good example. This is some data from a uh, survey we conducted last year in collaboration with Carnegie and the Wilson Center and a few other partners, uh, all about American views towards China. And we read people a list of potential problems in terms of our relationship with China uh, and, and asked them, how serious of a problem do you think these things are? And as you can see, when we asked the general public this question, uh, economic issues tended to top the list. 78% uh, said the debt held by the Chinese is a very serious problem. 71% said this about the loss of jobs to China. Uh, the trade deficit, 61%. People also are worried about these other things, but primarily, uh, their top concerns were economic issues. We asked the same question um, among elites uh, that we also surveyed uh, for this project. And as you can see, we got very different responses when we asked the elite groups the same question. So we talked to government officials, uh, retired military officers, business leaders, scholars, the press. Um, and all of these groups were much less concerned about the economic issues uh, with China. Uh, their top issue, uh, each group, uh, was cyber attacks from China. And this is actually before the most uh, recent spate of stories about, you know, Chinese hacking, Chinese cyber attacks on uh, think tanks and media organizations and, and businesses, et cetera. So the elites were actually ahead of the curve on, on this issue. Um, that was their number one issue. 
much less concerned about the economic problems. But among the American public, you know, it's the economic problems that are at the top of the list. And they see China very much as both a foreign policy issue and an economic issue. Um, so, so one reason we're seeing this desire to sort of pull away internationally is concerns about our own economy. Another, I think, is, is the fact that the American public essentially, uh, you know, after a decade of wars, has grown tired of, of international conflicts. You see it in, in some extent in data about Afghanistan. Of course, you saw it particularly in data about Iraq. Uh, this is our long-term trend, uh, you know, goes for a decade on whether Iraq was the right decision or wrong decision. Uh, back in 2003, overwhelming majority of Americans said it was the right decision. Around 2005 or so, those numbers began to change. And uh, ever since then, what you've seen is that uh, Americans are either divided or lean towards saying uh, it was the wrong decision. Um, and there are partisan gaps, as you might expect on this. Uh, majority of Republicans still in our 2013 poll said it was the right decisions, you know, far less among independents and especially Democrats. So there are partisan differences on this. But the overall trend has certainly been a downward one in terms of believing Iraq was the right decision. Iraq, Afghanistan, other issues have led Americans to, to be a little um, more suspect of getting involved internationally and, and reluctant to do so. And you can see that uh, on the questions we've asked recently about Syria. Uh, this is a question about arming uh, anti-government groups in Syria. So it's not, not asking about you know, a no-fly zone or getting American troops involved. It's just about arming the opposition to Assad. And consistently, we've seen a lot of opposition to that. 63% uh, back in March of 2012, 65% in, in, in December, saying they oppose giving arms to the opposition. Uh, we went back and asked the same question in June after President Obama announced that we were going to start supplying the opposition. You still got 70% saying oppose. So, um, you know, pretty consistent finding that Americans don't want to get involved in Syria. Another indicator, I think, of this overall trend towards wanting to, to be less involved internationally. Um, I don't want to leave you with the impression, however, that Americans don't want to use military force under any circumstances here. So uh, drone strikes um, uh, do get support from a, a majority of Americans. Uh, you know, we asked this question about a year ago, do you approve or disapprove of uh, U.S. drone strikes in places like uh, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia to target extremist groups? And you know, about six in 10 Americans say they approve of those types of strikes. Um, more approval among Republicans, but majorities among Democrats and independents as well. Um, I thought it includes some international data to show that not everybody agrees with the American public, however, on this question. Um, you know, the Brits are about divide, evenly divided uh, to the extent that Indians had an opinion, they tended to say approve. But elsewhere, you've got majority uh, disapproval of the American drone policy and in many, many countries, a big, big majority saying they disapprove. So this is one where you know, Americans see this issue very, very differently. Um, but we know from other questions we've asked that uh, concerns about Islamic extremism remain high in the United States, concerns about terrorism remain high. And uh, among a majority of Americans, they see drones as, a, as a, a good way in which to address those security threats. So that's uh, you know, a couple of reasons that might be driving this, this just pulling back internationally that, that the public seems to want. I thought I'd also share with you a couple of slides on uh, what Americans say about how they do see America's role in the world and, and the type of leadership role they'd like to see uh, the country play. Um, this is a question, again, we asked in our, our survey with Carnegie last year 
uh, both among the general public and among the elite groups. What kind of leadership role should the U.S. play in the world? Should it be the single world leader? Uh, should it play a shared leadership role? Should it not play any leadership role? And, you know, overwhelming majorities, both among the general public and among the elite groups, say a shared leadership role. Um, we've asked this question before, and we kind of knew this is what we'd get, so we wanted to ask a follow-up this time around. Um, and so if you said shared leadership role, we then asked you a follow-up question. Uh, should we be the most assertive among leading nations, or should we be more, no more or less assertive than other leading nations? And I think what we found is a pretty interesting difference between the elites and the general public on this issue. Um, with the exception of the press, um, majorities among all the elite groups want the U.S. to be the most assertive among leading nations. The general public uh, has a different take on it. They say no more or less assertive than other leading nations. So, uh, you know, in some ways, what you see among the general public is maybe support of the idea of, of leading from behind or, you know, maybe at least leading side by side, something like that. Um, certainly support for taking a less assertive role than what the elites think that we surveyed. One other thing we've asked about over time is whether people want the U.S. to consult its allies uh, in making foreign policy. We typically find that big majorities say, yes, we should consult our allies in making foreign policy. We also find big numbers saying that, yes, we think the U.S. actually does this. Um, this is a question where we ask, um, you know, how much do you think the U.S. takes into account the, the interest of other countries when it's making foreign policy? And we've consistently found majority of Americans saying that we think about other countries a great deal or at least a fair amount. That dipped a little bit towards the end of the Bush years, but it bounced back up under Obama. So, you know, last year, 77% of Americans said that we think about uh, other countries a great deal or a fair amount when we're making policy decisions. Um, the rest of the world, again, sees this rather differently. We asked people in other countries, how much does the U.S. consider your interest when it's making foreign policy decisions? Majorities in, the, in, in almost all the countries that we survey say uh, not very much. We don't really think the U.S. thinks about us when it's uh, making its foreign policy. I think the exceptions are actually kind of interesting. Uh, Brazil, China, India, these sort of emer big emerging countries that are taking an increasingly large role in world affairs and sort of feeling their own power a bit, they think that we do listen to them. But uh, the prevailing view in most countries is that we don't really think about other countries when we're making our foreign policy decisions. So you know, I, th I think we see some interesting gaps uh, uh, in different places in terms of American views about foreign policy. Uh, we see partisan gaps on certain issues. We see gaps between elites and the average citizen on certain issues. And we see gaps between what Americans think about ourselves, how we perceive ourselves, and how others around the world uh, perceive us. And you know, that's something that we've collected a lot of data on over time at Pew. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll, I'll just do a couple of uh, plugs at the very end. Uh, my uh, boss and mentor, uh, Andy Kohut, who's the founding director of the Pew Research Center, actually has an essay that we're going to uh, put up on our website uh, in the next day or two, hopefully, that deals with a lot of these issues. So if you're interested in that, uh, you know, I'd be happy to share that with you or, or come to our website and check it out. Uh, the other thing is that we're going to have some new data um, uh, next week on uh, America's global image and updating some of these trends that I just showed you. So again, if you're interested in that, you know, come to our website or I'd be happy to, to send that to you as well. So I'll leave it there and happy to talk more about uh, our data in, in Q&A. Thanks, Richard. Thanks. Thank you. PowerPoint gods. Hey. Go back there. Oh, good. Oh. That worked. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, I'll try to keep my remarks fairly brief because I think we're all here to get 
um, Trevor's recipe for brown ale. Um, <laughs> so, so we want to get to that quickly. Um, uh, thanks for inviting me, Justin, and for, to all of you uh, for coming. I, I, I'm going <clears> to <throat> talk specifically about one aspect of um, U.S. Uh, public opinion on foreign policy today, and that's essentially sort of where it, where it comes from. Um, as many of you know, the dominant perspective in political science and social science is about uh, public opinion, whether about foreign policy or domestic policy or anything, is that public opinion is a, is a top-down phenomenon. And what I mean by that is that because most Americans don't pay that much attention to politics, they have other things to worry about, such as the Kardashian Kanye West baby, mm. or whatever it may be, um, uh, and, and they know and they they know even less than information about politics than they actually pay attention to. Um, most Americans look to political leaders to provide some guidance about where they should stand on issues of the day, whether that's about education policy or climate change. Uh, or certainly foreign policy and military interventions and, and things like that. Uh, and so this is the dominant perspective in political science. Um, and the conventional wisdom, or I should also note that there's a, there's a huge compendium of literature, research by Z John Zoller that some of you may be familiar with, as well as um, the descendants of that research, ha have demonstrated empirically that this is essentially the way in which most Americans think about um, uh, political issues. And it's certainly true on foreign policy. When it comes to foreign policy, the conventional wisdom has been that the political elites that citizens look to most often for guidance tend to be almost exclusively domestic political leaders. That is, the president uh, himself and prominent members of Congress. And the reason that these tend to be the leaders that Americans look to is, because, is for a couple of reasons. One, because Americans essentially are willing to delegate to these people who they have elected to put in office and believe them to be informed and um, largely capable of carrying out um, uh, the government's responsibilities in an effective way, setting aside approval ratings of Congress. But that's actually a separate um, issue. But when you ask Americans whether they think that their leaders can effectively carry out their responsibilities, most think that they can. And so this is one reason that Americans look to president and members of Congress for leadership on these issues. The second reason is because these are the voices that most Americans are exposed to. When we think about where Americans get their inf information about politics, it's almost exclusively through the news media. And News media, news um, uh, reporting tends to focus on the perspectives of the most prominent domestic political elites. When we hear debates about foreign policy, it's typically President Obama arguing with members uh, of Congress and the Republican Party. Or when there's a Republican president, it's a Republican president against Democratic members of Congress. Um, and so the news tends to place a lot of focus on these particular domestic elites, and thus Americans hear their voices, and thus public opinion often reflects the positions that are taken by political, uh, these prominent political elites. Um, uh, but for the last few years, I've been working on a research project that wants to suggest that that might be a little bit too simplistic of a portrayal of where American public opinion comes from on foreign policy. Um, and that this research that I've been working on suggests that under certain circumstances, it may not just be domestic political elites who can shape US public opinion about American military intervention or other foreign policy endeavors. But it may also be the international community itself. And what uh, my co-author and I, Matt Gardino uh, of Providence College, uh, call foreign voices. Um, and uh, what I'm going to share with you today is a little bit of evidence suggesting that in certain, under certain conditions, Americans may respond to the approval or disapproval of the international community of proposed US foreign policy 
actions. And um, in particular, I'm going to talk to you about that in the context of some recent work that I've done on um, whether or not Americans support uh, airstrikes against Iranian nuclear facilities, something that has been um, uh, discussed from time to time uh, over the last couple of years. Um, uh, Matt and I embedded in a nationally representative survey uh, back in November after the 2012 election um, uh, a survey experiment that was designed to determine whether or not Americans uh, would support uh, airstrikes against Iranian nuclear facilities under certain, under different conditions. And in particular, um, depending on the positions that were taken by President Obama, uh, Republican leaders in Congress, as well as uh, members of the international community. And let me describe a little bit to you about how that experiment um, worked. Um, so. As I said, this is a nationally representative survey, and all of the respondents in the survey, I think about 800 were in this, um, in the survey, were um, uh, given a preface to a survey question that essentially said, uh, that said this. Everyone read uh, this particular statement. There's been a lot of debate recently about Iran's nuclear program. This month, President Obama suggested that the United States should consider launching airstrikes against suspected Iranian weapons facilities. Um, now, obviously, President Obama did not say this explicitly, uh, but this is actually quite plausible given the position that Obama has taken on this issue, which is essentially to say that all options in dealing with Iran uh, are on the table. Uh, if you have questions in the Q&A about whether or not telling people things like this is actually an effective way to persuade them that this is a, the president's position or whether this is ethical, um, uh, and, and I'll tell you that, that all those subjects were debriefed after the experiment and told that Obama had not explicitly taken this position. Uh, so they're informed of what reality is. Um, but, but I'll be happy to answer questions about that in the Q&A. Now, here's how the experiment worked. Everybody saw this statement, but then respondents were randomly assigned into one of four different treatment conditions in which we varied the, the purported position on this issue taken by John Boehner, and taken by members of the United Nations Security Council. So the first condition is one that we'll call Boehner Pro, UN Pro. This is a condition in which both John Boehner and UN Security Council members were, the, the, the respondents were told that the, both those um, groups of elites were supportive. And this is what the text that they saw read. Uh, Republican Speaker of the House John Boehner has said that he supports the airstrikes. Members of the United Nations Security Council also say that they support the airstrikes. So this is what we can think of as kind of an elite consensus condition. President Obama supports this, John Boehner supports this, and members of the United Nations Security Council. So what we're really interested in is whether there are differences in the levels of support among respondents who were exposed to this information compared to respondents who were exposed to subsequent information in the subsequent treatments. The second treatment was what we call, simply because we're not very creative, Boehner Pro, UN Con, uh, where uh, respondents are again told that Boehner supports it. But in this case, respondents are told that UN Security Council members oppose this. That is, there is now opposition to this from the international uh, community. We've done other experiments in which we um, uh, assign this uh, position to Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General, as well as other foreign leaders. And we get basically the same results um, as when we make a vague statement about UN Security Council members. By the way, most Americans have no idea who's on the UN Security Council, so, uh, you know, like whether it's Angola or Botswana, whatever, you know, that um, uh, they don't really know. Um, and then, as you can imagine, the, the subsequent two conditions uh, simply vary, again, um, in those Boehner is opposing um, the president's proposal for mil military strikes, 
and the United Nations is either supporting or opposing. And so again, so what we're going to do here is compare the responses among the respondents in each of these four conditions. And in doing so, we'll be able to determine the extent to which variations in elite positions by uh, John Boehner and the United Nations affect Americans' support for military action. With all of that wind-up, you kind of know what I'm going to show you, right? Um, and so what I'm going to show you first is a graph that simply um, plots the percentage of respondents in each of these four treatments, Boehner Pro, UN Pro, that's the elite consensus condition, Boehner Pro, UN Con, Boehner Con, UN Pro, and then, and then the last condition where both Boehner and the United Nations are opposed to this. I'm just going to plot the percentage of respondents in each of the conditions who supported, in a subsequent survey question, um, uh, airstrikes against Iran. Uh, so in the first condition, the elite consensus condition, about two-thirds of respondents said that they supported that. So that means that when Obama lines up behind this, the Republican leader lines up behind this, and the United Nations, about two-thirds of Americans are willing to say, yes, we should intervene. Um, this is, really speaks to Richard's point, which is that where um, Americans don't seem, if you just ask them a survey question, do you want the United States to be more engaged and you know, in, engage militarily, they, they're reticent to do so. But if you tell them that political leaders think it's a good idea, then they go, oh, okay, well, I guess we should. Right? I mean, this is sort of where this, this is consistent with the notion that elites really can influence public opinion on these kinds of issues. But the real question for us, of course, is whether there is then variation depending on the alignment of John Boehner and um, United Nations. And uh, what we find is that simply changing the position of UN Security Council members reduces public support for uh, airstrikes against Iran by 12 percentage points. For those of you who are interested, that's a statistically significant uh, difference. Um, and when we simply change Boehner but leave the United Nations in support, what's really interesting is that support is actually somewhat higher than when the UN opposes. Right? Though those two, the difference between those two conditions is not statistically significant. Um, uh, and so what that suggests is that uh, in this scenario, with this, given this, um, this sort of elite alignment, the influence of the UN is about equally as influential as John Boehner is, which is quite distinct from the conventional wisdom that it's only domestic political elites who matter. Right? Opposition from the UN has virtually the same effect as opposition from John Boehner, and it may be even a little bit stronger. What happens when both Boehner and uh, the UN oppose strikes? Wow. It's even lower. <clears throat> Only about 40%, less than a majority. Even when the United States president advocates a position, a popular United States president who was just elected by a significant majority, right, this is after the 2012 election, right, a point at which Obama is essentially at his most influential, we might think of it, only 40% of Americans support this if they are told that John Boehner does not and that the United Nations uh, does not. Now, as Richard also mentioned, you might imagine that there are partisan divides here, and there certainly are. And so the last thing I'll show you here uh, is just what happens when we break down these results by the party identification of the respondents. Um, one thing you will notice in every condition is that, of course, not surprisingly, Republican support for attacking Iranian nuclear facilities is always higher than Democratic support. That's not a surprise. Um, but what we're really interested in is the variation in the effect of the treatments among the partisan groups. That is, do Democrats and Republicans respond differently to, in particular, the UN? Uh, I'm not very good at whole, keeping that mystery because I put that in the title slide. Um, but what we're gonna, I'm going to show you is that Democrats are indeed more responsive. In the elite consensus condition, 83% of Republicans said that they supported it. 
54% of Democrats did, so it's a pretty wide partisan divide. But what's really important here is look at the second condition. UN opposition has almost no effect on Republican support for attacking Iranian nuclear facilities as long as um, Obama and Boehner are supported. But it has a 23 percentage point effect on Democrats. Simply changing the United Nations from supporting to opposing this drops Democratic support for intervention. Right? Um, you can also see that there's effects of uh, Boehner's opposition, even among, on, on Democrats, but that's actually smaller than uh, the effect of the United Nations. And then when Boehner and the UN both oppose, there's a pretty significant effect among both um, Republicans and Democrats. One thing that is quite counterintuitive here, and that's important to underscore, is that this, keep in mind, this is a situation where Democrats, Democratic identifiers, are rejecting a clear cue from their popular Democratic president, provided information that the UN does not think that this is a good idea. So what it suggests is that while domestic elites do have quite a bit of influence over Americans' views about foreign policy, even partisan political leaders, there is a limit to how persuasive they can be. Because some Democrats, certainly, who are going to be more dovish on these issues, don't support a policy like this. And given information that the international community thinks it's a bad idea, are willing to also articulate and express their opposition. So let me end by just highlighting a couple of, of takeaways um, that uh, emerge from this. One is that I think this you know, sort of um, expands our understanding of the particular elite voices to whom Americans might respond. This does nothing to sort of change the notion that America, US foreign policy opinion is a top-down phenomenon. But it suggests that the voices to whom Americans might respond is quite um, a bit broader than the existing, the conventional wisdom um, uh, suggests. Um, now, what's important, of course, is that this is only going to be the case when Americans are exposed to the perspectives of international actors. And so that means that the news media are a particularly important part of this dynamic. To the extent that the news media incorporate into reporting and thus make available to Americans the perspectives of the United Nations or for other foreign leaders, what we call foreign voices, that's the circumstance under which these voices are most likely to shape what Americans think the United States should do or not do with respect to foreign policy. So there's an important role for the media here. And then finally, just from the perspective of policymaking, one of the things that this implies is that presidents have a pretty powerful incentive to get the international community and their allies on board for particular foreign policy efforts, whether it's a military intervention like this or something else. And, and that's, there's two reasons for that. One is the obvious one that um, you know, presidents are interested in, in generating burden sharing. That is, they don't, want, they don't want the United States to be the only country sharing the burden of some sort of foreign policy um, uh, effort. Um, and because they want, and there's also an operational um, argument in that it's likely to be more effective if there are more um, nations involved. But the second is that this suggests that the international, getting the international community on board is really important for presidents who want to mobilize public opinion in support of their foreign policy proposals. If the international community opposes it and that information makes its way to the public, that may dampen the president's ability or, or make it harder for the president to mobilize even his own partisan supporters to support it. And then that, of course, can have consequences for whether presidents are willing to engage in particular foreign policy endeavors and, the extent, and how much political capital they have when they enter into them. 
um, if this 15-minute um, uh, presentation has not uh, sated your appetite for this kind of inf information, which uh, I'm sure it has, um, uh, you can also buy this book, right? This is a, a, this is a book that uh, Matt Gardino and I just published with Cambridge University Press, which Justin was kind enough to mention, uh, Influence from Abroad, Four Voices of the Media and U.S. Public Opinion, in which we elaborate on this particular argument. The book is all about um, the lead up to the Iraq War and the way in which foreign voices actually became quite influential in shaping public opinion uh, in the lead up to the war, which had consequences for sort of the political capital that President Bush had going forward. Uh, with that. So with that, I'll stop. Uh, thanks very much. Thanks, James. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I didn't prepare any beer remarks, so I, I'll skip that for till the Q&A. Um, thanks, Justin, for the invitation to be here. Um, my talk today is called uh, Wisdom or Madness? Why Presidents Should Not Listen to Public Opinion on Foreign <laughs> Policy. Uh, and the title comes from James Surowiecki's provocative uh, 2004 book, The Wisdom of Crowds, uh, in which he argued that under the right conditions, the aggregated opinions of a crowd, or the public, uh, are better at getting the right answer than the smartest individuals or experts. And though he wasn't writing specifically about politics for the most part, his thesis nonetheless summarizes very nicely the sweep of most deep thinking in international relations uh, over the past couple of centuries, going back to Immanuel Kant. Um, though no one would argue that individually Americans know very much about foreign policy, and we've already kind of learned that today, uh, many observers believe that people are rational enough that when considered collectively, uh, they provi provide sound guidance on important policy issues. And this wisdom of crowds argument is getting some good play in the debate over what to do about Syria. Uh, intervention opponents are looking to the polls, like we saw here, uh, for crowd support. Um, a recent Pew poll that I just heard about uh, <laughs> found that 70% of Americans opposed the use of or arming the rebels. Another Gallup poll found a very similar number recently. And to many people, that seems like a very wise uh, guidance uh, or position indeed, especially in light of not one but two 21st century wars that both took far longer and cost far more than originally expected. And one ambassador for this interpretation is Harvard's Steve Walt, who wrote over at foreignpolicy.com, the overwhelming majority of people who have doubts about the wisdom of deeper involvement in Syria, including yours truly, are not isolationist. They are merely sensible people who recognize that we may not have vital interests there, that deeper involvement may not lead to a better outcome and could make things worse, and who believe that the last thing the United States needs to do is to get dragged into yet another nasty sectarian fight in the Arab world. On the other hand, we have people who support intervention who are not so quick to praise the wisdom of the crowd. Um, at a, an event in early June, President Clinton argued, and I'm going to quote here from a, a story from Politico, uh, Obama or any president risks looking like a total fool if they listen too closely to opinion polls and act too cautiously. Uh, he used his own decisions on Kosovo and Bosnia as a point of reference, and I'll add parenthetically here, evidently without any irony whatsoever. Um, Clinton said, what the American people are saying when they tell you not to do these things, they're not telling you not to do these things. They hire you to win, to look around the corner and see down the road. So the question at the heart of the issue is this. Is there, in fact, wisdom in the crowd that the president should attend and learn from? So this is the question I want to take up today. Um, and you've already maybe guessed I have grave doubts about the wisdom of the crowd. So today I'm going to argue that wise presidents should most often ignore the crowd, both when majorities oppose them and when majorities support them. And I'll start with four reasons why I think this is true, and then conclude for a proposal that hopefully doesn't make me sound like such a horrible person at the end. Mm. Um, the first reason a president uh, should not listen to the majority 
is that people are not just individually ignorant, even as crowd lovers acknowledge, but collectively ignorant. Um, and you've probably seen figures in the news. 50% of Americans can't even identify Syria when it's highlighted on a map just of the Middle East. Um, and I'm pretty sure that figure is wildly generous. The number of Americans who could tell you anything of note about Syria fits into, at most, a small college town. And that's bad enough, uh, individual ignorance. But the bigger problem is this collective ignorance. Throughout history, American society has exhibited something that we might call limited social rationality. Thanks to nationalism, religious and cultural values, traditions, historical circumstances, American majorities are sometimes wrong about really, really important things. Slavery, the treatment of native people, women's rights, the rights of various minority groups, the list goes on and on. And when it comes to foreign policy, majorities have made some pretty big mistakes too. Sometimes on the side of being too cautious, sometimes on the side of being too bold, too slow to recognize the threat of Hitler, um, too acquiescent when Kennedy and then Johnson escalated Vietnam into a pointless disaster, somewhat overeager on Iraq in 2003. Despite the statistical magic of aggregation, there's simply no promise that the majority is correct, especially on national security issues that uh, engage deeply held values and emotions like fear, lust, and hunger. A second important reason that presidents should ignore public opinion is because American opinions are irresponsible. Uh, when Pew calls people on the phone to get their opinions on Syria, for example, um, these people have no responsibility to answer thoughtfully because they have no responsibility for US policy on Syria. And because of this, American opinions on foreign policy exhibit several characteristics that make them unsuitable for providing policy guidance. First, because as we've discussed, Americans know little and care less about the rest of the world. They undervalue how important things are happening in the rest of the world until things have gone too far and really blown up. Second, uh, American opinions don't reflect one of the most critical requirements of policy evaluation, and, and that's a consideration of trade-offs. Americans are not responsible themselves for making tough decisions between guns and butter, uh, and so they tend to respond to poll questions in a vacuum, unhindered by the context in which decisions must actually be made. And so when you ask Americans what they want, they want everything, a solution to every problem, zero casualties, uh, at no cost. Third, uh, when people being polled don't know the answer or don't have an opinion on the specific question at hand, they often use the poll as an opportunity to express their feelings and emotions uh, rather than their lack of knowledge. Um, so the answers to many questions um, about specific policies actually reflect general feelings about the president, in particular, or the state of the world, uh, rather than actual opinions about the policy itself. So in general, irresponsible opinion, opinions don't provide much in the way of wisdom uh, for a president who would be seeking guidance. The third reason for presidents to ignore public opinion is that the siren call of the majority creates moral hazards and perverse incentives, all of which militate against making sound policy. Presidents who worry too much about building and maintaining majorities are more likely to inflate threats, to lie to the public, to conduct covert operations in order to avoid debate and criticism, to focus obsessively over leaks, and to misuse intelligence. In almost all of these cases, the president and his staff engage in these activities firmly believing that they are necessary evils in support of greater goods. But what makes the evils necessary, ironically, is the fetish for majority support. The poster child for this problem, of course, is Vietnam. Uh, a war in which majority worshiping presidents gave us lie upon lie. First to hide engagement with South Vietnam, then to hide plans to expand the war, then to hide how poorly the war was going, then to hide the secret bombing campaigns intended to bring about a more satisfactory peace deal. Uh, on the other hand, presidents who are too comfortable with their existing majority support are more likely to stop evaluating their own policies, to become arrogant and overreach their mandates, and to see, fail to see trouble coming. And I believe we're seeing the result of this kind of majority-induced overconfidence regarding the war on terror, 
With comfortable majorities in the polls favoring presidential action since 2001, first Bush and then Obama have drastically expanded the war on terror until the point where it bears little relationship to the initial rationale under which it was launched. The fourth reason that presidents should ignore public opinion is that majorities are socially constructed illusions. And I think we could see this in three ways. Uh, first, majorities are socially constructed illusions because the way we frame poll questions about foreign policy often determines whether a majority appears to support a policy or not. Uh, as Bruce Gentleson discovered in his 1992 paper, A Pretty Prudent Public, which many of you I'm sure have read, uh, describing an intervention as required to protect US national security will always generate higher support than describing the intervention as required to help bring peace to a troubled nation. The problem that Gentleson skated over, uh, however, was that there's no right answer to the question of which one of these frames is the right one. In the case of Iraq in 2003, for example, was the mission really about protecting US national security, or was it about regime change and nation building in the Middle East? The way the question is framed determines whether a majority supports the war, but the way the question is framed does nothing to tell the president what kind of war it actually is, nor what is at stake or what should be done. Second, majorities are illusory because they have a tendency to appear and disappear in strange ways. Majorities have faded away for every major war, we've seen this today, since World War II, that have lasted longer than a weekend and involved more than a few hundred casualties. On the other hand, majorities have also appeared after actions have been taken that had not existed before. The invasion of Panama is one such incident. The wise crowd clearly opposed it before it happened, and then it clearly supported it after it happened. So the president is in a real quandary here. Which majority should he listen to? The majority that opposes nation building or the majority that supports defending the US? Should he obey the majority that opposes action now or the majority that will approve it later? Or maybe even the majority that is unhappy later because he didn't do anything today. Chasing a majority is kind of like chasing a mirage in the desert. And finally, majorities are social constructions because the crowd is dependent, as Danny pointed out here, on political elites for almost all the necessary information to make decisions about foreign policy. Uh, elite cues provide people with a very handy shortcut to determine their opinions. But as a result, public opinion on major foreign policy issues reflects information pretty much only from elite debate and especially, but not entirely, the divisions in Washington, rather than any independent deliberation by the public based on diverse sources of information as sort of the wise crowd theory requires. So if there is a majority out there, it's an elite construction. And in fact, and Danny's research is excellent on this point, if we look at many cases of US foreign policy and intervention, we can actually see two socially constructed majorities, a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats, watching each other warily from across the policy divide with no hope of a wise consensus in sight. Okay, I hope at this point I've made at least a reasonable you know, surface case that presidents should not expect the crowd to uh, serve as an oracle for foreign policy. But let me just say, um, before I go too far, that I don't mean majorities are bad, or undesirable, or even always wrong. Um, and in fact, democracies need them to survive and to get things done. And in the best of all possible worlds, a president would take the right foreign policy action with majority support. So how do we square the circle? I propose that presidents should respect the role of the majority in the democratic foreign policy making process, rather than the position of the majority. So let me explain what that means, right? Let's take the Syrian conundrum. Imagine that uh, Rice and Powers have convinced Obama that it's time to take action, get more involved. But then Obama reads in the news that 68 or 70% of the American people oppose further support for the rebels. Should he decide the crowd knows better? Of course not. What the hell do Americans know about Syria? Not a dang thing. And most people care even less, right? But guess what? They're still the majority, right? And a very convincing one at 70%. 
And that gives the opposition position a legitimacy that Obama's interventionist policy simply does not enjoy. And I think this fact has three important implications for him. First, and most obviously, Obama needs to respect the fact that most people think this is a bad idea. At this point, he is now duty-bound to try to explain himself. The goal is not to win majority support. Frankly, I don't think he could do it. Right? It would be great. Um, the goal is to respect the fact that majorities play a special role in legitimizing the actions of governments and presidents. Obama is free to move forward without majority support, but he owes it to the majority, even if it, the majority is wrong, to explain his position. Second, opposition majorities, especially big ones, should make presidents cautious. When presidents launch or persist in policies opposed by large majorities, there is a serious risk to the system. Even if the majority is wrong, the clash between the sovereign public and its elected servant can have disastrous consequences for society, and in extreme cases can lead to a crisis of faith in the government that goes way beyond the policy in dispute. Vietnam would be our perfect test case there. Presidents are thus also duty-bound to consider the potential consequences of carrying out anti-majoritarian foreign policies. Third, presidents need to confront majority opposition head-on and not resort to lies or covert action to avoid explaining themselves. If Obama has done the math, tries but fails to win majority support, and thinks the U.S. needs to go ahead and intervene more directly in Syria anyway, that's fine. He gets paid to make the tough calls. But what he cannot do is decide that he wants to carry out the policy without confronting the majority's judgment. As the president, you get broad latitude to carry out foreign policy, but at the end of the day, the majority is the boss, and will decide whether you stay or go. That's the deal. So in conclusion, uh, a wise president should ignore public opinion in the making of foreign policy. He has the duty to see further and more clearly than majorities of individual Americans who have no motivation to see beyond today's context, who have no responsibility for the national interest. Lincoln saw the unsustainability of slavery more clearly than the public. Roosevelt saw the threat of Hitler more clearly than the public. They acted on those visions, and the US and the world are better for it. But presidents must also have the discipline not to lie or manipulate to build majorities. Or, and they must maintain vigilance even when the majorities support the current course of action. Presidents should also not lose sight of the socially constructed nature of public opinion and their own role in shaping it. And at the same time, presidents must respect the democratic process and I think the sacred role of the majority in legitimizing government action. Uh, presidential foreign policy should, just, should thus incorporate an open conversation explaining and justifying policy decisions should reflect a judicious appreciation for the consequences of taking actions not approved by majorities, and above all, should provide the public the opportunity to make the final judgment. Thanks. Thanks very much to everybody for those presentations. There's plenty. Uh, I knew there was going to be a lot of uh, food for thought on the table here today, but uh, there's, there's an awful lot. Um, in, the, in the course of trying to, to draw a little bit of that out, I'd like to usurp uh, the moderator's privilege, if, you're, if you'll indulge me, and ask sort of a, a, a question of the entire panel to the extent um, they're willing to take it. It's not a secret. I think that uh, one of the jobs, my job really at the Cato Institute, is to push for fairly radical change uh, to American grand strategy. And so one of the things when I was putting this panel together, uh, self-interestedly enough, uh, that I wanted to ask was the extent to which people on the panel think that those of us who are pushing for radical change to American grand strategy are, 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 are sort of pushing on an open door, right? So if we close our eyes and envision, I don't know, President Paul or something in 2017, who says, you know, this NATO business is really getting a little old and you know, we're subsidizing all of these wealthy countries that could defend themselves and da-da-da-da-da. Um, the, the sort of 
traditional, very responsive um, uh, democratic model of public opinion would say, well, the public would be up in arms. It would never allow such radical things uh, to happen. But one of the things we haven't talked about here today is salience, that the, the, when the public actually cares, and some of Richard's data talked about this a little bit. Um, and w So number one, foreign policy isn't terribly salient now or, or most times. Um, and one of the things we also talked about today was uh, elite consensus, right, that, that elites, the sort of traditional Zoller, top-down model, et cetera, et cetera. Would even an elite revolt uh, on the part of Republican or Democratic elites, foreign elites, or all three, really damage a president that sought uh, dramatic sort of uh, restraint in foreign policy issues? Um, so I don't know. That's a, it's a pretty big question. It's a pretty uh, uh, selfish question on my part. But if anybody wanted to take a stab at all or part of it, uh, I would value your considered thoughts. Or if nobody no, wants I'll, to. I just talked. Somebody yeah. else. I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at it, and then you can, somebody else can correct me. Um, so, so let's imagine Rand Paul, um, if we can, as president, um, <laughs> taking on this strategy. Um, so if the question is, would this hurt him politically, or would he, and would he be able to effectively be able to carry out this kind of policy. I think those, those are separable, right? One is sort of mechanically whether, whether a, a fundamental change to American foreign policy can be affected by a president in that way. Um, I'm not an expert in, in civil military relations or um, uh, in kind of the foreign policy making process, but I, uh, um, as a political scientist, uh, I'm one who believes that institutions are pretty durable and that uh, coalition, policy coalitions are pretty durable, and so I think it would probably there would be a lot of pushback, not necessarily from the public or from actors external to the governmental process, but those who are internal that would make that a difficult policy change. But let's take the question that I, I'm a little more comfortable with, and I probably speak a little bit better to about uh, the political consequences of that. Um, uh, if a if a president undertook a radical change to grand strategy of the sort that Justin's proposing, um, I think there would likely be a pretty significant counter mobilization against that. Uh, either because there are individuals or coalitions with sincere policy preferences that oppose it, uh, and because there might there there is likely to be seen by Democrats or others uh, political gain to be made um, from that mobilization. Um, how would that would that then affect um, public opinion? I suspect that it would because uh, the news media like nothing better than a fight, right? Uh, if there's one, I was a journalist, and so I can sort of say all kinds of crazy things about the news media, and then you can decide whether or not I'm I'm credible on that. Um, but you know, if 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 there is a um, a, a serious political contestation to be had, the news media are going to pay a lot of attention to that. And one thing we know about public opinion is that it often responds to elite dissensus. So when there is a conflict of the sort that might arise from this because of the mobilization of these interests, it's likely to get a lot of public attention. And so you're probably likely to get a pretty significant polarization in public opinion um, in which individuals who um, look to different political leaders would be responding to the different messages coming from those, those groups, uh, one on the sort of uh, more you know, sort of isolationist side or some sort of more multilateral side, however the divide emerged. Um, and so what I think that would mean is that you would end up with, with pretty polarized public opinion. It wouldn't necessarily doom the strategy, but I think it would carry significant political costs for a president who would prefer to make such a massive change in, um, in American foreign policy uh, under more consensual conditions or under conditions that um, would be, uh, again, give him more political capital. So that's my, that's my take on that. 
Yeah, I would second most of what Danny just said. I, I think that if we go back to Richard's uh, data and you look at the spikes of isolationism in the 70s, defense budgets dropped after Vietnam, and then what happened, Reagan came in campaigning on building the military back up. Uh, Clinton uh, paid very little attention to foreign policy, and although the budget didn't drop nearly as much after the end of the Cold War as you would imagine, giving, hey, the Cold War is over, um, the Republicans still ran on, oh my God, he ruined the military. Um, and my guess is that the next Republican to run is going to try to say the same thing about Obama, except he's been very busy ramping up everywhere he can, so I don't know that that will work quite as well. Um, but I think an extension of that is that you're not going to find a, a Democratic president with enough political capital to make that kind of thing happen. If, if Rand Paul has a different coalition of Republicans who are going to back him in uh, cutting uh, military budgets and, and bringing back troops and so on, that, that theoretically is political politically possible without too much counter-mobilization, but I, I don't see a Republican who's about to do that either, so that might not be. Yeah. I, I would just add that I think your point about salience is a, a, an important one, and you know, arguments about foreign policy or grand strategy that are likely to gain traction are, are, are probably those that um, address what people are concerned about, you know, which in right now, first and foremost, is the economy, you know, and some of the data that we were, we were talking about shows people are concerned about the economy, they're concerned about the rise of China, they see an economic threat from China, so that's both a foreign policy and an economic issue. Uh, so, you know, if you're thinking about grand strategy and what was likely to be on the minds of people, I think it's it's got to have a security component, sure, but it's also got to have this economic component, because that's what's really uh, top of mind for Americans and, uh, right now. Well, and, and just one last thing is that this on the salience piece, absolutely right. I mean, look at the last big change to American grand strategy. What prompted it? 9-11. Mm -hmm. I don't think you get those without World War II's, 9-11's, something big. Yeah. yeah. So. Great. All right. Well, I have very firm instructions here that I'm supposed to read about the questions and answers. Uh, obviously, please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone to come around so that we can actually hear you. I can barely see, so I'll do my best to, to get people from the back of the room. And please announce your name, any affiliation, and make it a very direct, uh, very punctual question. There's a gentleman right here in a yellow shirt, I believe. Yeah. So, thank you. Uh, wonderful and informative presentations. You're, you, when you focused all of you on public opinion, you tended to concentrate on American public opinion. My question is, is this largely true for any national leader um, who wants to weigh what role public opinion in his or her nation ought to play, or is there some aspect of American exceptionalism that a U.S. president should keep in mind so that U.S. public opinion is different from that of other nations? So the question regards the relationship of U.S. public opinion to U.S. policy versus I don't know, Pakistani public opinion to Pakistani, sort of within each particular country? Question. I mean, I, th I think you can answer that from all, all three different sort of perspectives. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, the big the big difference between the U.S. and uh, and other certain other cases is whether the country is a democracy or not. 
Um, and in fact, the last time I was at Cato uh, and John Mearsheimer was talking about why leaders lie, we had this conversation and his book uh, you know, points out that democratic leaders are far more likely to lie than leaders from non-democratic states to their own publics. Um, and the reason is, you know, at least on sort of certain policy issues, is just because uh, they don't need support, so they don't bother. Um, so, but American presidents face these political you know, realities, pragmatic you know, questions of do I have a majority with me or not? Uh, can I get done what I want or not in, in an easy way? And so that, that's the first big one. I, I think generally, though, if you look at other democracies, uh, Israel d dealing with you know, intervention issues, foreign policy issues, Britain, um, most of those leaders seem to face the same general kinds of political uh, dynamics. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's right. Uh, that sounds right to me if we think about the context of democracies. One thing that I think might be a little bit different and that, that does make the situation in the United States a little bit unique is just our, um, our institutional structure. And so by having um, a system in which we have a unitary president and a Congress that is elected at the district level, uh, you create a different set of political dynamics uh, in the United States um, compared to a country that has a parliamentary democracy where you have coalition governments. Um, and so what that means, I think, is that um, you know, there's a lot of research on public. There's there's research on public opinion in the European context that shows that this the sort of top-down model of public opinion that I talked about and that we've all made reference to um, does work in other um, in other systems. Um, but I think it, the politics of that plays out a little bit different because when you have um, uh, multiple parties in a coalition government, then you have multiple leaders of different political groups agreeing to a particular policy, and then they are maybe in a, in a more conservative fashion able to make that argument to their constituents or to their supporters. Um, because we have a system in the U.S. where you essentially have a Republican or a Democratic president typically fighting with a Republican or Democratic Congress, or at least leaders um, of the opposition party in that Congress, um, I think it means that uh, presidents have a little bit harder time managing public opinion in the United States in some ways because when you have the mobilization of these opposition interests that may come from uh, members of Congress who have their own, have particular kinds of districts and, and you know, they, they have different interests than the president does, that may create the dynamic, that dynamic may be a little bit different in the United States. But I think in general, this kind of model of top-down public opinion seems to work fairly similarly in other, um, in other contexts. Uh, I just would add that, you know, of course, in a democracy, there's a there's a clear political logic as to why leaders care about public opinion. But you know, I, from what I've seen, I, I think there's a real interest among leaders of non-democratic societies about public opinion too. Uh, you know, Putin does his polling. Uh, the you know regimes in the Middle East that aren't democratic pay a lot of attention to polling that's done there. You know, my understanding is the the, the Chinese government. Uh, it does some polling, pays attention to public opinion. So I think there's, there's certainly an, an interest in what uh, average citizens are thinking, even in uh, non-democratic societies, uh, even if the political logic's a little bit different. All right, let's see, all the way there in the back, the gentleman in a light uh, jacket. I can't see that far up, no. Hi, John Samples, Cato Institute. Uh, war is an instrument of uh, foreign policy, and it, I have two prior beliefs about uh, war and public opinion, which, uh, which are, and they both may be wrong, and I'd, I'd like your opinion on that. One is that the near-term incentives for going to war are quite good. That is, you get a bump in public approval if you're president, and therefore the incentives are to do that. But however, over the long term, because war involves, uh, generally speaking, 
uh, people getting killed, particularly American soldiers, you pay a kind of a price for that. It's very clear that casualties over time are related to uh, declining presidential approval. Now, that suggests that even when we observe presidents do go to war, that either they're myopic or they simply are going to ignore public opinion for some higher good or their legacy or whatever. But that latter implication suggests that actually public opinion is not much help in controlling the use of widespread force by the government. So is all of this correct, or is, and is in the end public opinion really not all that important in foreign policy? The most important thing, the use of violence. Start with Trevor. All right. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll give the, the pessimistic answer on the one hand, which is that, um, yeah, I don't think it's much of a constraint um, on those cases that you're thinking of. I think you're right. The rally effect usually kicks in. And presidents enjoyed, a, a, you know, a period, a honeymoon period at the beginning of, of most conflicts of any kind, really. Um, and, you know, there's arguments still among people who study this stuff about how long they're going to last and under what conditions. But I think if I were a president today and I looked at Korea, Vietnam, uh, and, and Iraq and Afghanistan, I'd have enough information to, to, you know, pretty much know that if I was launching a war that was going to last four or five years, that was going to happen to me if I was still around. And so then, then you have to ask yourself, well, um, how, how, real, how important is the wisdom of the crowd? And I think most presidents um, think they have a better handle on foreign policy than the crowd. I mean, that's, that, that's either yay, that's good, because the crowd is pretty stupid on these things, or oh, that's terrible, because I really like the public. That's, you know, how it's supposed to work. And so, but I think we, you know, we say we live in a democracy, but we actually live in a republic. And that's actually how the republic's supposed to work. You get a chance to throw them out later. You don't get a chance to vote on whether we go to war. Danny, did you have a thought on that? Or? Um, yeah, so I think the, that's interesting. One thing that um, some research in the last few years has, has, I think, been pretty compelling in showing is that the decline in presidential approval as wars wear on and as casualties rise is probably not a product of casualties themselves rising or the costs, the economic costs of a war themselves rising. It is the elite interpretations of those events to the public. And what I mean by that is that if you ask Americans um, uh, how many soldiers have died in Afghanistan or how many soldiers died in Iraq, they're very likely to get that number wildly wrong. Adam Brinsky, a political scientist at MIT, wrote a book in 2009 in which he showed pretty persuasively that uh, even in the midst of the Iraq war in a time when that war was getting a lot of attention, Americans didn't really have any sense of, of how many soldiers had died. And thus the notion that um, casualties themselves are actually driving presidential approval ratings or support for a war um, doesn't really stand up empirically. But what he showed pretty persuasively and what a lot of other work has seemed to show is that what happens is that as casualties rise, as economic costs of wars rise, it's the elite coalition that initially supported the war that begins to fracture. And as that fracturing occurs, then there is elite disagreement. So if you think about the Iraq war as an example in 2003, Democrats weren't happy about the war, but they were essentially tacitly going along. They only went along as long as it appeared that the war was successful. But once the insurgency you know, it really took hold, once it became clear that things were going badly, Democrats became more and more vocal in their criticism of the Bush administration. And that's what seems to help explain the decline in approval for the war and for the president. And so what the implication of that then is that you're probably right, that public opinion in itself is not likely to serve as, as an effective constraint on um, politicians, but it is likely to serve as an indirect constraint because presidents have to manage the elite coalition. 
uh, my colleague Elizabeth Saunders um, has a paper in circulation in which she makes this direct argument that, that it's essentially the management of uh, foreign policy uh, leaders, uh, the defense um, uh, department, um, the military, and other political leaders that are really central to president's abilities to take the country into war or not. And, and they matter because they influence the public, but it's not the public itself. And so I think your assessment right at the end of the day is probably right. Um, the public does have a role, but it's not the direct role that we might imagine in some other kind of models of how uh, the public can constrain presidents. And just one other quick point is I think over, over the course of a conflict, the availability of information also changes so that, uh, you know, at the beginning of a conflict, it's elites or maybe even a subset of elites who have the information about a conflict or uh, that, that information becomes more available over time to other elites and to uh, the general public and they're able to therefore make different cost and benefit assessments based on information. So again, you know, I, I think the, the role of public opinion and the importance of it can shift a bit over the course of a conflict. It's less important maybe at the beginning, but it can become more important as a constraint later on. Let's go uh, over there in the, right there. You still have your hand up, I see. Yes. Hi. Um, first, thank you all for coming. I really enjoyed your presentation. Identify yourself and any affiliation. Uh, my name is Nikita. I'm an intern in DC. I go to school at Notre Dame. Um, I really appreciated, Mr. Thrall, your discussion of uh, the social construct of the majority. Um, and in a similar thread, I was wondering if someone could talk maybe about um, the influence of the majority on the majority. Um, for instance, the respondents who are contacted by Pew, um, I'm sure most of them have read online that 40% of Americans believe that or 2% of Americans believe that. So how do you think that the majority or this constructed majority, how does that influence the real majority who are answering these questions and how that plays into foreign policy. Thanks. Mm -hmm. That sounds like one for Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we do like to think our surveys are uh, impactful. So that would be, you know, good. <laughs> people are, well, Pew says that 60% says X, so we, we've got to think that. I'm not sure we have that much influence though. Um, there, there, may be some, there may be something to that. Um, of course, I mean, we also see that, however, that, you know, polls change. So, right, it's, it's not just sort of, you know, people have learned uh, what public opinion is and then they've got to adhere to it. We see uh, people uh, responding to events and elite cues and things like that. So, I mean, it's a very interesting question. I can't say that I've got any empirical evidence on how much perceptions of what the majority is really affect uh, people's uh, opinions. Um, it's probably one factor, but my, my guess is it's not a huge factor in, in determining uh, how people view an issue. It's more these elite cues and reactions to what's, what's actually happening in the world. I think you've got a dissertation there. Um, <laughs> let's go over there on the right side, in the back. Yes. My name is Tyler Sinclair, and I'm a graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, and I'm writing my uh, master's tutorial or thesis um, on this topic, and specifically I'm looking at the impact of age on uh, foreign policy views, and what's very clear in all the data is that, as you guys probably know, the millennial generation is very opposed to any type of U.S. activism or intervention um, under many circumstances. So. And that data happens to break very, very clearly along generational lines. So I was wondering if you guys could um, 
maybe give some theories about why that might happen or um, why those breaks are so clear along generations. Well, you know, we, I can't say that we've done uh, statistical analyses or, or I've been involved with statistical analyses looking at the, you know, impact of, of age on, on some of these things. Uh, obviously, it's conflated a bit with party. Uh, millennial generation is also trending a little bit more democratic, but I'm sure you're, you know, controlling for all the relevant independent variables in, in your studies. I mean, I, I do think that, that, that that's true. Um, in some other ways, we see, I think, younger people in the United States being more internationalist in, 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 in their thinking, not about getting involved sort of militarily in issues around the world, but in terms of you know, how they perceive the rest of the world. What do they think about China, for example? What do they think about other countries, other cultures? And, and when those types of questions are much more positive, you know, looking for maybe more international engagement uh, in those ways, but as you said, perhaps less willing to sort of, you know, use American force overseas and, and, and those types of engagement. And, you know, one other thing, of course, is that in the studies of political socialization, you know, there's this concept you're probably aware of, this notion of the critical years and people's political development and the development of their political attitudes, roughly from the age of 18 to 30, in, in which pe the life events and political events that occur during that period um, have a, a pretty a disproportionately strong effect on people's political attitudes. It doesn't mean that what they experience at that time is going to fundamentally overturn what's happened, what they've learned growing up and their existing predispositions. But it does, it does mean that people who come of age in an era in which we're coming out of a couple of wars in which there has been um, you know, a, a growing consensus that the Iraq war was um, a misadventure and things like that may lead them to have um, uh, more anti-interventionist attitudes. And so that may be part of what's playing into this generational effect, that these are people who are, whose first experience, political experience, that is at an age in which they're sort of thinking about these things, um, is an era in which there's been a lot of criticism of American foreign policy over the last decade and engagement uh, in the Middle East. And so um, that may be contributing to, to those kinds of things. And I think that's consistent with a lot of the other socialization literature. And, and I'll just chime in on that and point out that that's exactly the kind of thing that I was referring to when I was talking about the concept of limited social rationality is that, you know, different cohorts of Americans have different sort of built-in anchors or biases based on their socialization. Uh, some people might look at millennials and go, finally, Americans who really get it. Um, well, that doesn't say very much for the rest of Americans who evidently don't get it. Uh, or is it just an accident of birth? Uh, they don't really get it. They just have a bias, right? So, interesting. More questions. Um, let's go in the back there. Leading a black, dark shirt and glasses. Yes. Right. Yeah, right there. I'll come back to the front. I'm sorry. I'm just my eyes are focused back in the back. Thank you so much. My name is Laura Russo. I'm with Oxfam America. You guys have um, put, <clears throat> excuse me, put forward uh, some really interesting remarks and thought provoking, certainly. Uh, and you focus very much on military intervention, um, obviously, given the, the news of the day, rightly so. But I was wondering if you could also focus a little bit on, arguably, another tool of foreign policy, which is foreign aid, and specifically um, uh, poverty fighting, foreign aid, um, development aid, not military aid. Most Americans, when asked how much uh, we spend or how much of our federal budget goes on foreign aid, they think it's 20%. When they're asked how much we should spend on it, they should say 10. Um, and they don't realize that it's, you know, poverty fighting aid is 
probably around 0.5%. So I'd love to get some of your comments on, on the role of, uh, of, of public opinion on foreign aid and, and how foreign aid is used as a political football, um, given perhaps this misconception. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you're, you're, you're um, uh, you know, citing some really interesting work that's been done on this topic, which, uh, you know, shows exactly that, that people sort of wildly overestimate the amount of, of, of foreign aid that uh, the U.S. government gives to other countries. Um, you know, we've asked a few questions about this over time, and um, it just comes up as a very low priority for Americans when you read them uh, a number of foreign policy uh, potential priorities. You know, things like democracy promotion, foreign aid, um, these just continually come down near the bottom of the list. So it's, it's not always necessarily uh, that people oppose these things. It's that it's just not a priority because it comes back again to the idea of salience. It's always going to be these security threats, you know, in the current environment, economic threats, things like that are what people are concerned about. So it's hard for these other types of foreign policy issues to get much traction uh, because they just don't rise at the top of, of, of people's priority list, particularly at a time where they're really concerned about economic issues. If I could just add my entirely non-social scientific uh, view on this is that people tend to think that the things they dislike cost a lot. So if you look at, for example, the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, you know, as, as it became much more unpopular, people thought that, well, that was what caused the financial crisis. We were wasting all this money on these stupid wars when, as a, as a practical matter, that's not true. So I will allow the social scientists here to slap me down on this issue, but I think you get this sort of affective backward reasoning where this is really dumb, we're in debt, therefore it's the dumb thing that caused the debt, rather than a sort of more uh, uh, social scientific uh, approach to these things. So yeah. I'll gladly be swatted. No, I, okay, I, no, <laughs> not wrong. Great. Absolutely. I've survived today. All right, I promised I'd come down to the front lady in the yellow. Thank you. Uh, my name is Irene Wu. I'm with the Federal Communications Commission. And Nikita's question reminded me that it might be good to ask this panel uh, about the effect of social media, because you've, effect, you've discussed the, inf in the importance of information, how the flow of information at different points in a, in a policy uh, a problem affected. And um, certainly with social media, you have a, a dramatic change in the quality and the quantity of information available to the public. And you have this kind of bandwagoning effect that's more possible and more easily available to a broader public than before. So I wondered if any of you would be interested in addressing that. Um, I'll, I'll start. This, um, so, and Richard can correct me if I get some of the Pew numbers wrong, if you're familiar with these. So I think that uh, roughly 14% of Americans are on Twitter. Um, uh, I don't know if that, I, it, it's something around that, that number. Um, and, you know, there's quite a few more Americans on Facebook, um, which is two-thirds or something, maybe even higher than that. Um, but there was some Pew data that came out uh, last year asking people how they use Facebook and Twitter, the social media. For, and um, only about a third of the people who are on those sites said they use that to ga gather political information. Um, I, I say that simply to to note that um, while these media are certainly growing in importance and they certainly have, they, I think they play some role in how Americans think about that, um, the audience sizes not, are not yet large enough for those to really be the sort of the key contributors to the way that Americans think about this because most people aren't getting their information about politics from those sources. 
the most popular sources of political information remain amazingly network television newscasts, right? It's like, well, is that still on? Um, uh, local newspapers and more traditional sources. Of course, most much of that is now migrating online, but it's still the same kind of information. It's just in an electronic format now. And so what I what that means is that um, while these social media uh, venues uh, certainly do open up opportunities for different kinds of information and a faster flow of information. The audience sizes now just aren't that big and they probably don't play a major role. Um, uh, and the other component of that, of course, is that lots of what um, the political discussions that occur in social media, uh, while certainly different from the conversations that might occur in people's actual real social networks, um, are often spurred by mainstream news organization reporting about things, right? So New York Times story about the Republican Party that's going to focus on Hillary Clinton's age, right? It was a story that came out a couple of weeks ago. It was rocketing around the, the blogosphere and social media, but that's basically a news, straight news story. And so one of the things I think it's difficult to do as this in, the media environment changes is to really isolate the effect of particular media outlets. And I think right now, um, the conclusion of the literature is that this stuff is growing in importance, but it probably doesn't play a massive role right now in sort of shaping public opinion writ large. I'll, I'll take a whack at that. I just finished a paper looking at, at human rights NGOs' use of, of social media and versus their exposure in, in traditional news media. And I think the biggest problem, in, in this room, we have not a normal selection of Americans, right? And so when you guys use Twitter, oh, well, Trevor, let me tell you what I mean by that. So, so if we investigated the Twitter feeds of most of the people in this room, there would be weird things like Cato Institute on them, right? And if we took a random sample of Americans, we would find nobody with Cato Institute in it, right? And so the, the problem is not that social media is, unfortunately, it doesn't matter how much better social media are at, at informing, getting messages to massive quantities of people. The problem is their very limited desire to consume pol political information. That has not grown just because we have new ways to tell people about things. And so, and I think, in fact, the opposite is the problem. There are now more non-political choices than ever before. And so people who are not very interested in politics are increasingly not choosing politics. So. We have this weird divide. Marcus Pryor wrote a, a great book about this called Post-Broadcast Democracy, where he sort of laid out how this is, I think, going to go. And that is people who are interested in politics are getting better and better informed, and it's easier than ever to do so because of all the different social media and so on. And people who don't care very much about politics are getting stupider and stupider. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another avenue for elite cues, you mean? Oh, sure. I mean, well, I think there is an interesting dynamic about the way in which social media are increasingly used. You talk to people on the Hill, right? And what they have to deal with is activists. That is yeah. the really weird people in, in America, right? Mm -hmm. Who are, are like... Sorry, Oxfam. Who, 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 I mean, who... who who, some of, no, I don't even mean the people who are actually paid for this, but people who are just the, the most partisan, the most extreme individuals constantly contacting representatives. And that absolutely, I think, can be important because it can skew our representatives' perceptions of what public opinion actually is. And so I think that dynamic, right, is increasingly important for um, informing politicians' strategies, which may or may not be based on what their constituents or what the larger public actually wants. And I, I think that's a very important element of sort of the way in which social media is making a, is playing a role in politics. Yeah, I'd I, I just add that, I mean, I, I agree that it is sort of easy to maybe overestimate the impact that, that some of these the social media is having and thus far on, on, on our politics. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is all still a relatively new technology. I mean, you know, this is still evolving very much, and particularly if you look at millennials, for example, 
know, they are getting more and more of their political information in different ways from, um, from social media. The other thing I'd, I'd say, and this probably reflects my own bias a bit because I'm interested you know, in international public opinion, but I, mean, I think some of the most interesting questions are not about how it's being used here in the U.S., but how it's being used in, in other parts of the world. There's obviously been a lot of debate about social media in the Arab Spring. Uh, you know, you look at what's happening with Weibo in China. Um, you know, the, it's sort of outside of the United States, I think, are some of the most interesting questions about how this is being used. Uh, we did a survey last year where we asked people around the world about whether or not they use social networking, how they use it, and by far the, the countries where people used it the most to uh, talk about social and political issues were the Arab nations that we surveyed. So, you know, I think there's some really interesting questions about how this might affect political mobilization, collective action, things like that, not only in the United States, but also around the world. I think we have time for one more. I saw your hand first. Gentleman in the white shirt. Uh, hi, Brian Alexander. Um, I'm a public affairs consultant, but also a, a PhD student in political science at George Mason. Um, my question is something that's, uh, I think, is Im Im implicit in the discussion here, and, uh, but also very important pertaining to it, which is what is the role, the, what is the actual role of public opinion in shaping um, U.S. foreign policy? And um, so we're talking about what is foreign policy and sort of what are some of the, the cues that, that, that lead to U.S. foreign policy. Um, uh, but but what is, the, when, when does and how does um, uh, public opinion shape foreign policy? And, um, the, you know, this is something that's important um, uh, I, I know in the political science literature, it, it's not exactly clear. I mean, even in some of the, the the cases you would you would think in which there's sort of a a popular narrative about the role of public opinion or or or, or, or domestic politics, let's say, shaping uh, policy toward Israel or Cuba or Armenia or, or wherever it may be. Uh, but then when you kind of get in the literature and you try to draw the the connections, um, it's 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 they're not exactly clear. Um, and this is important, not just from an academic perspective, of course, but whether you're a guy driving in his car, listening to the news and concerned about the world, or you're you know, somebody who's a, a political analyst at a, at a leading think tank, the question is, when does public opinion, when does what we think um, matter, and, 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 and how so? And I was wondering if the panelists might speak to that. We'd have to we all, did we all just waste an hour and a half? <laughs> yeah. so, so how does it matter? We just uh, figured some things out, but who cares? <laughs> well, I'd say this isn't, you know, based on sort of an academic perspective, but just on, on observation. I mean, a couple of ways that, you know, it seems to matter is it obviously sets the, it helps set the uh, incentive structure for, for politicians and political leaders. And they can decide, you know, whether or not they want to follow it or not, but it, it's part of the incentive structure that they, they have to deal with. And again, this is more so sort of based on observation, you know, the work we do at Pew, other types of public pollsters. Is, I think it, it, it helps... Um, uh, put issues into the, 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 the public arena or provides information for public debate. So, you know, if you look at um, work that we and lots of other people have done in the United States on views about homosexuality, gay marriage, you know, that set of issues over the last few years, we've seen these dramatic changes in public opinion. And, you know, I think that our, you know, the polling that's done that's tracking that and, and measuring that, um, is part of the, the debate over that issue. So I think that, you know, in terms of what, what pollsters do is we, you know, especially Pew, we don't try to influence debates one way or another, but we put out information out there that tracks where the American people are at and it becomes part of the political conversation that the country's having about a given set of issues. It can become part of the discussion itself and then right. sort of 
ratify people's pre-existing. Anybody? How it matters? Public opinion? Uh, I, I'd, I'd end up talking for two All right. Well, <laughs> Trevor didn't bring any beer, um, but we're going to go ahead and have lunch anyway. Uh, the lunch will be held on the second level, so up the stairs, obviously, in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. Restrooms are on the second floor. On your way to lunch, look for the yellow wall. Thank you all very much for coming, and please join us upstairs. Thank you.